Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a new podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. We sit novelists and critics down together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. So I'm one of your hosts, John Plotz. You'll be hearing from my partner, Arthi Vade, in upcoming episodes. Today, I'm joined in conversation by the terrific Scottish novelist, James Robertson and Penny Fielding, not only a distinguished scholar of Scottish literature, but also president of the Society for Novel Studies. So uh, a brief note on what this podcast is exactly. So years ago at a conference, Arthi and I heard a novelist describe the experience of talking to academics as inviting a cow to a butcher's convention. And uh, James, I really hope you don't feel that way. So we would have preferred a slightly different metaphor, maybe inviting a cat to visit a high school <laughs> bio lab, but we, we do take the point. Still, over the years that we found that some novelists do enjoy talking with scholars about the underpinnings, the ground rules, and the history of what it is they do. So Novel Dialogue invites a novelist and a literary critic to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, write them, publish them, remember them. We hope to bring you, our dear listeners, a lively, sophisticated dialogue that dissects the art of novel reading, writing and considers the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about the world. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and spread the word to friends. So it is a great pleasure today to welcome my friend, Penny Fielding. Hello, Penny. Hi, John. Hey. Um, Penny, I don't hear the joy in your voice that I feel. <laughs> oh, John! <laughs> this is a cold winter's day in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, it's a pretty cold winter's day in Boston, too. Um, so I should say Penny is the Grierson Professor of English Literature at University of Edinburgh and author of, among many other things, a wonderful collected uh, a wonderful edited collection on Robert Louis Stevenson, countless articles and two amazing books, Writing and Orality and Scotland and the Fictions of Geography. She's joined, at least in Scotland, if not quite in person, by the prolific and conceptually amazingly inventive novelist, James Robertson. So hello, James, welcome. Hello, John, how you doing? I'm going well, thanks. So you're going to hear a lot more about James, who um, grew up in Bridge of Allen, lived for a time in the writer Hugh McDermott's house. I kind of want to hear about that part. Uh, got a history PhD, writing about the novelist Walter Scott, in fact, from Penny's own university, and worked as a bookseller in both Edinburgh and Glasgow. So I'm guessing this conversation will range from his witty 2000 debut novel, The Fanatic, uh, to 2016's To Be Continued. But I just want to start by saying that I hope everybody rushes out immediately after this podcast to get to know him the same way I did, which is by reading his 2006 genre-bending and mind-bending novel, The Testament of Gideon Mack. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand the virtual talking stick over to you, Penny. Thank you, John. And I thought we would start with a bit of that novel, Testament of Gideon Mack. Um, it's a novel that's been very influential in Scotland. And actually, is much beloved by our students here at the University of Edinburgh. So I think James has agreed to read us a little bit and to introduce that novel to us. Yeah, <clears throat> I've uh, taken a bit from quite near the beginning of the novel, um, just so that I don't have to spend too long explaining uh, all the 
preceding stuff if I, if I read something from halfway through. Um, the novel, The Testament of Gideon Mack, is really about a Church of Scotland minister called Gideon Mack. And um, the bulk of the book is a, a, a found manuscript that he writes, um, which is only found after he has uh, died or gone missing and, and, and nobody knows where he's gone to. And um, so I'm just going to read, yeah, from near the very beginning of his, his testament. Um, and um, I think it's all pretty self-explanatory. All you need to remember, as I said, is that he is a minister in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, sometimes known here as the Kirk. A misty Saturday afternoon in early January, cold heart of the winter, the start of this year of revelation. I am running through Keldo Woods on the forestry workers' track, my mind tuned to the clean sound of my breathing and the slap of my trainer's soles as they crack frost-veined dubs and spatter icy mud up my shins. I turn off the track and onto a narrow footpath that climbs slightly as it winds through the trees. After a few hundred yards, it levels out, then divides in two. I go left, then at another fork, left again. I remember all this as clearly as if I had it on film. In fact, sitting by the fire, remembering, is a little like watching a film. By now, I am deep in the woods where few people venture, but there comes an open area where the tall pines give way to tummocks of coarse grass and thick, springy moss cushions that turn green in summer but are frosted and brown on this wintry day. And there it is, to the right of the path, in the middle of this space, a stone, looming in the mist like a great tooth and a mouth full of smoke. It brings me to a sudden and astonished halt. I stepped off the path and crunched over the spongy, ice-laden ground to where the stone stood. It rose three feet taller than me, a lichen-blotched molar, a giant's blunt pencil, a solitary, petrified stob. Centuries of rain and wind, it seemed, had in some places smoothed and in others wrinkled the surfaces. It looked as if it had been there forever. But it hadn't been there two days earlier, when I'd come that way for the first run of the year. I was sure of it. The first day and the first run. For 14 years, I'd been running the byways of the countryside around Bonnie Masket. I reckoned I knew them as well as anyone. There had never been a stone there. I was sure of it. I put out my hand and tentatively, as if expecting an electric shock, let the backs of my fingers brush over the cold surface. Then I pressed my palm against it, leaning into it the way I did against the door jam when warming up to stretch the muscles in the backs of my legs. What was I expecting? That it would shift a little, maybe even topple or crumble to dust? I didn't even flinch. I am writing of less than a year past, but it seems decades ago since I stood in those woods, staring at a stone that shouldn't have been there. The only word that came to me that expressed what I was feeling was, fuck. I started saying it between breaths as they slowed down a little. Fuck, fuck, fuck. 
The breaths were mine, but then they were outside and away into the atmosphere. I was in front of a standing stone that didn't exist. What the fuck is going on? I said loudly. A minister using that word might be thought daring or dangerous, but my voice sounded wee and lonely in the silence, a voice bleating in the wilderness. If God was out there, he was either deaf or didn't care. He didn't at any rate strike me down. I thought of Peter McMurray, one of my elders. Had he chanced to overhear my expletives, he would certainly have expected God to take a pot shot. But nothing happened. The stone certainly was not offended. It continued to be there, continued not to disappear. It didn't give a damn about me, or even a fuck. I started to shiver. Don't get cold, I told, my, told myself. But I wasn't cold. I backed away. The stone remained. It looked disapproving, as if it knew who I was. I didn't like it. Felt a strange panic rising in me. I returned to the path and started running again. And um, it's kind of funny because uh, I was out, I went out for a run this morning, um, just a short one, um, and and the weather was just exactly what it was like like there. And and I, funnily enough, also where I stay, and this is completely this is weird, weird. Where I stay, about two miles away from from that from the house is an old Pictish standing stone that just sits up on the hill there. And I run past it all the time. Um, that wasn't actually the stone that I was thinking about when I wrote that passage. Um, but, um, but the area of, of, of Scotland where I live is in Angus. The, there are loads of Pictish re re remains and the, the, the countryside is littered with these standing stones. They're all over the place. Um, and they're anywhere between about 1,200 and, and 1,500 years old. Um, uh, so the so I think that that's that was kind of weird that um here I am reading that passage out today, um having run past the stone this morning. <laughs> or at least you think you ran past the stone this morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a wonderful passage and introduces some of the themes of your work, which we might get onto later. You know, particularly ideas about the relationship of evidence and belief and the problem of faith. Um. So we will talk about that later, I hope. Uh, but perhaps we could just uh, kick off the conversation with uh, going back in time and asking you, James, when you started writing, how did you know that you were going to be a writer? Um, I, I knew I was going to, I knew I wanted to be a writer from a very, very early age. Um, pretty much as soon as I could physically write, I was starting to write down stories and things, or, or or I was drawing cartoons and comic strips and things. I knew I wanted to try it. I, I, I liked books from, from a very early age, and, and I think I could read um, pretty quickly, you know, by the time I was about five. And um, and I, I I loved what books did, that they, that they kind of enabled you to get into other worlds. And I pretty much decided then that, that what I would really like to do would be to, to be able to make these things. So, yeah, from a very early age, I, I was writing stories and, and so on. And I started writing a novel um, probably when I was about nine, nine or ten. And it was terrible. <laughs> but And then I went on through my teens writing 
actually at that point I was infatuated with the American West, with the Wild West. So I was writing westerns, even though of course I'd never stepped outside of uh, of the British Isles. But that was I was writing westerns because I was I was brought up reading Louis Lemur and and J T Edson and and Will Henry and all these great um, writers of westerns. Um, so that was what I thought I was going to end up writing, but um, it turned out differently. So. Just to put you on the uh, spot that I'm in now, if you were in my position and had to hold a, a con host a conversation with a novelist, living or dead, who who would you pick? Well, this is this is a, I've been puzzling over this for the last day or two, trying to wonder who I would end up choosing, and um, I, I'm going to I'm going to stick my neck out here and 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 go back and into try to interview a, a, a dead writer and I've chosen probably um, this is not a very good choice I've chosen Robert Louis Stevenson um, who I, I read started reading when I was quite young and I, I he's probably the writer I go back to most um, and reread his books but I'm kind of worried because I think probably if I did get the chance to interview Stevenson, he would be bumptious and, and self-opinionated and um, wouldn't listen to what I was asking him and so on. Um, I, sometimes it's a bit of a, not a good idea to meet your heroes and I'm not sure if, if I would actually have liked him very much, but I do love his work, I love his writing, and I would particularly want to ask him about two novels. Um, one is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I've read dozens of times, um, and which reveals something more to me every time I read it. And I'd like to ask him about some of his thinking behind that short but wonderful book. Um, actually, I, I'm lying. I would, I, I would not, there's so many books there I'd want to ask him about. But the other one I would like to ask him about is his great last unfinished novel, Weird of Hermiston, which um, I, to me is it's just the tragic part of his life. It's, it should have been probably one of the greatest novels ever to come out of Scotland and he died obviously while he was still writing it and I would really want to just um, quiz him very hard about exactly what he had in mind you know and where he would have taken it towards the end and then with his permission I'd go off and finish it for him. <laughs> can I jump in here actually I, I love those answers James and get can I ask just because probably I'm uh like a lot of the readers and that I know Jekyll and uh, our listeners and that I know Jekyll and Hyde much better than I know the rest of Stevenson, even though I, I love the other things I've read as well, of course, but can you say more about, about Jekyll and Hyde and what, what draws you to it or what you'd want to know about it? Well, Jekyll and Hyde is such a fascinating book and I'm sure we'll come back to this later in the conversation because it seems to me to be a sort of text that sits alongside another great Scottish novel from the 19th century, James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner. And, and I find both of those books fascinating because no, many, no, no matter how many times I read them, I come out the other side and still not really having managed to grasp what's going on. They're, they're, they're both intriguing but also slightly frustrating and mystifying because they, they don't provide all the answers. Yeah. But I but I like that because I don't think novels should provide answers necessarily. They they should provoke questions. But the reason that I really like um, Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde is it's it's such a compact book. It's only 120 pages long or something, and yet he he's 
really trying to get to me, to, to my mind, he's trying to get inside his own head, but also trying to move the the thinking of a novel from the from the 19th century into the 20th century. It seems to me to be a bridge between the, the, the sort of Victorian way of writing big novels to the, the sort of modernist way of writing fiction. Um, it's a it's a it's a book that, um, as I said, it doesn't really reveal what's going on. It doesn't. Every time I look at it, I find a little sentence that comes back in and and hits me again, and I think, oh, that's that's that didn't feel like that the last time I read this book. Um, so yeah, it's it's just a it's just a a book that one never gets to the end of, in spite of the fact that it's a very very short book. I always think that if I could go back in time, I would like to be one of the first people to read Jekyll and Hyde. Imagine reading it and not knowing, not knowing yeah. what. Uh, it's a little bit like um, watching um, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho um, before you know actually what's going on there. You know how shocking that must have been for people who watched that movie in 1960. And uh, you're absolutely right, Penny. When you don't know what's going to happen in, in Jekyll and Hyde, it is actually astonishing and shocking. And also, uh, there's two other things very briefly to say about it. One is that, that of course, it, in some level, at some level, he's talking about doubles and split personalities, and that goes back to his his own sort of upbringing in Edinburgh. But it's set in London, um, and that I think is a significant shift. But it's also set round about the time of the of the um, the Jack the Ripper murders. I can't remember it now, but they they happen very close together. Those two things, and there's a sense that. He's really delving down into the and in, deep into the mists, you know, of 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 London, the fog of London, and the tail end of the of the nineteenth century. And he's really digging deep into the morality, I think, of of that city and also the civilization that it represents. I wondered if we could talk a bit about uh, another novel based on a trial. Uh, your novel, your second novel, uh, Joseph Knight, which you wrote before our recent um, kind of public acknowledgement of the role of Scotland in the uh, slave trade. And uh, I wondered if you could talk a bit about why you decided to write that novel um, with a character, a titular character, Joseph Knight, who barely appears in it until the end. But we find out throughout the novel there's so much about the uh, problems of justice uh, and the difficulty of obtaining justice uh, in the Scottish Enlightenment, which we you know, have been trained to think of as being uh, you know, a, a kind of haven <laughs> of rationality and um, fairness. The reason I started writing this book was it was I'd had one novel published, uh, The Fanatic, which we might talk about a wee bit later, and a, a friend who had read that actually just handed me a sheet of paper, um, which was a photocopy of a, um, a, a page from a, a history book about Dundee, city of Dundee. And he said, there's, a, there's an idea for your next novel. And all it said was something like, um, um, Dundee was for a while the home of Joseph Knight, the first uh, black slave to win his freedom in Scotland. Um, and he at one point lived in Dundee and, and married 
uh, a girl from Dundee. And I looked at that and the date that when this all was supposed to have happened was 1778. And I began to scratch my head because I had done uh, a PhD uh, in the history department of Edinburgh University some years before. And I had actually studied that period of Scottish history, the Scottish Enlightenment, um, when I was doing my PhD on, on Walter Scott's work. And I had never heard of this Joseph Knight court case. And that surprised me because I thought I knew that period of history quite well. And so I thought, what's going on here? And how come I don't know about this slave and, and his bid for freedom through, through the courts? And that was what started me to, to, to look into it. And what I feel I discovered, this was about the year 2000 that I began to do the research, was that um, the, the whole history, not just of Joseph Knight, the individual slave, but the whole history of Scotland's relationship with slavery had either been lost or forgotten, or perhaps more worryingly had been sort of brushed under the carpet because it was actually an inconvenient truth. Um, and the more that never that I happened. Said, I don't know. I don't know. That never happened. <laughs> well, the, 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 the more I researched and the more I, I looked, the more I thought, hang on, there's a, there's a story here that, that I don't know about. And this is, you know, I've done two history degrees, for heaven's sake. How come, how come I... Because, because I, I don't want to go on too much about this, but my, my perception, and I think the perception of most people in Scotland 20 years ago, was that slavery was something that had happened in play or been associated with places like London and Bristol and Liverpool. Those places had been the ones who had been trading in humans, taking them from Africa uh, across to, to the Americas and then bringing back um, the products of slavery um, you know, to, to the, the, the mother country, so-called. And I had no real sense that, that Scotland had been had much to do with all of this, which of course was an un ridiculously naive thing to think, but it just wasn't written about. There was virtually nothing in any Scottish history book about um, our engagement with slavery. As it was a revelation really for me to write the novel because it taught me so much that I didn't know. And one of the things it taught me was, you know, again, now I think, how naive was I? But it taught me the, the fun, when you think about the system of slavery as an economic system, as a moral system, as a social system, that the one thing that underpins it, that holds it and makes it function is violence and the threat of violence. And um, if you take that away, there, there is no thing, there can be no thing as such as slavery, because nobody would allow themselves to be subjected to slavery if they implicit or explicit threat of violence was not hanging over their heads every single day. And the, the violence that I found um, in doing my research in the Jamaican sections of the book were just utterly unbelievable. I, I, again, I'm naive, or I was naive. This was not stuff that was unknown to other people, but I hadn't really considered it. And I certainly haven't considered it um, from the point of view of, of, of being Scottish and that this was something that, that my country and my people, admittedly a couple of hundred years ago or more, had been deeply engaged in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is something that's very much a topic of conversation now, has recently become so. Um, in Edinburgh, there's a, a big debate about what we should do with the statue of Henry Dundas 
sit under a square. Now, Dundas was one of Joseph Knight's defenders, but also became notorious for slowing down uh, William Wilberforce's attempts to uh, get, get an abolition act through Parliament. Can I, can I actually ask an open-ended question about, this is just something that's been on my mind since yesterday when I discovered that Johns Hopkins, who founded Johns Hopkins University, was a slave owner. And, you know, when I taught there, we were told, oh, you know, this guy was a great abolitionist, because that's just what you said about people in the mid-19th century. If you didn't know, you were like, oh, yeah, they were really anti-slavery. And then come to find out, you know, the, the, you know, it's, he was an enslaver, as they say. And I guess I'm just thinking about, it made me think a lot about the word implication, like the sense of culp connected culpability or genealogical culpability. And, and I don't know, James, what you were saying about Scotland and, you know, like, you know, my people made me think about that question. Do, do, do you have sort of further thoughts about that? Again, in, in the vein of fiction about what what your novels, how your novels think through that question of implication or connection? Because there's so much of your novels are about resonance between past and present. So, yeah. Well, maybe I'm not sure if I can uh, highlight how, how I can answer that best. Maybe maybe I could maybe I could answer that by quoting the um, uh, the epigraph or one of the epigraphs to the novel Joseph Knight, which is a quote from. The Nigerian writer Ben Okri, um, a little um, in, in his book Birds of Heaven. And somebody, I came across this when I was writing Joseph Knight, and I just thought this is, this is really a really important thing to say. And he says this, nations and peoples are largely the stories they feed themselves. If they tell themselves stories that are lies, they will suffer the future consequences of those lies. If they tell themselves stories that face their own truths, they will free their histories for future flowerings. And I think that's, in a way, what what I what I think I'm trying to do with some of the some of my writing, some of my fiction. Um, and I I don't mean that in a kind of narrow nationalistic kind of way that somehow you know you can cleanse uh, the past and then we all go forward into a beautiful bright future. Um, but I do think that. There is a sense that if you know Scotland at this particular juncture is is in a a, a sort of a, a place of political flux, uh, you know, and and trying to make work out decide whether it wishes to to um, take on more political autonomy and 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 self government and so on, and it seems to me that you that that with those kind of questions comes an absolute need to look into your past and find out where you have come from uh, in order to have some kind of sense of where you might want to go in the future. So I wonder if you ever look back onto your novels and what's your relationship with them after you've read them? Do you think, well, <laughs> I wish I'd done something differently or uh, how do they change in your relationship with them? Um, it's kind of funny. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think, um, I mean, at one level, you write a book, you finish it, you, 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 you say, I have now, I've done as much as I possibly can to make that as good a book as, it, as, I, as I can make it. It now needs to go out and into the world and have its own life. And at that point, there's nothing more you can do. So you kind of have to let it go. 
And so I, I don't sort of sit there rereading re or rethinking those books. They're gone, they're over for me, and, and at least at that level. And also the nature of, of publishing uh, is that before the before one book is published, I'm usually my head's well into the next one. You know, that's just the nature of things. And, I, and I'm, I don't, I'm not a very prolific writer in the sense of, you know, some people turn out a novel every one or two years. I, I, my, I think my average is about one every three years. So I'm quite slow. Um, but that's just the way I, I work. And I've always got lots of other projects on the go anyway. Um, so I don't go back and dwell on them, although sometimes I do when something like this is going to happen, I kind of open them up again and 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 look at them. Um, but I also, the, another Scottish novelist called Alan Massey said something really interesting that lodged in my brain some years ago. He said that um, very often, he was actually saying this in relation to academics in um, um, critiquing fiction, and he said that he thought academics often didn't know how a novelist's mind works. And he said that very often in his experience, and I thought, yeah, I'm with you on this, um, you don't actually know what you've written until sometime after you've written it, uh, and even sometime after it's been published. So then somebody comes along and usually says, I think this book is about this. And you think, oh, yeah, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't necessarily think that yourself at the time. And I don't think that that's just, you know, that's either laziness or not, or, or, or kind of not having thought through what you're trying to write when you do it. I think it's just that the process of writing a novel, for me, is a very, very intense thing that takes takes a long time. As I say, it takes me two years, three years maybe to, to write a book. So I'm constantly thinking about it and driving it forward as I, as I do that. And I write, you know, five, six several seven drafts of the of each one um but even then so you i get closer and closer to thinking yeah i know what this book is about now with each draft but actually sometimes i don't really know until sometime after it's finished and even then i don't know i mean people come up to me still with the testament of gideon mack and say so did gideon mack really meet the devil and my answer to that is i i don't know and then they sort of say, well, you're the author, so <laughs> surely you must know. And I said, well, that's not for me. That's not for me to answer. It's for you, the reader, to answer. And I think, again, just to, I, I love the idea. For me, again, a book, a novel in particular, but any book, is a two-way process. You, you know, somebody writes it and it's published. And then it goes off and sits on a shelf in a bookshop or a library or whatever. And it's effectively asleep until such time as somebody else comes along and opens up and starts reading it. So the reader, simply by reading it, is the other half of the creative process. And, and the reader must bring something to the book in order to make it work. And that, I think, is absolutely fascinating because, of course, no two readers are going to read any book in exactly the same way. And I think the you know, you can say that that's the same for a film or a picture or something, but I don't think I don't think it is the same. I think a printed piece of creative writing is, in some way, quite unusual in that sense that you require somebody else to really invest their their imagination in it in a way that doesn't happen with other art forms in quite the same way. And James, I think you have a, another novel that is just 
leaving your desk and leaving your imagination yeah. for the world. Yeah. Could you give us a little hint about that? Um, it's called News of the Dead. And um, and again, that's kind of interesting. That, that there's, a, there's a phrase that somebody uses in the book. Uh, when they say we've heard we've heard news of the living, but we've not heard news news of the dead, and that jumped out at me, and I thought that's yeah, I think that's what this book is about. Although I may discover that I'm wrong. <laughs> it's um, it is set in Scotland again. It's set in uh, the part of Scotland I live in, which is Angus, which is um, about 65, 70 miles north of of Edinburgh. Um, it's a very um, rural part of the country, and um, there are a number of very beautiful glens that run up into the into the Cairngorm Mountains. And it's set in one of these, but it's actually set in an imaginary glen that I've made up. And um, it take, the, the, the novel takes place over a very, very, in, in this one very small secluded place, but it takes place over a great deal of, a, great, a large period of time. Part of the story is set in the, in the, the 8th century, part of it's set in the early 19th century, and then part of it's set in the 20th century, and actually today as well. In fact, when I was redoing re the rewrites, I realised that, that although I hadn't really realised it, um, that it actually was a, a, a coronavirus um, stroke pandemic, stroke lockdown thing going on there. So the novel does have that element in it as well. So it kind of goes, covers about 1,200 years, um, um, but, but as I said, jumping back and forth in time, but, but absolutely rooted in one place. Well, that is definitely something to look forward to. Uh, and I, like you, I very much hope that we'll be able to turn up in person uh, for the Edinburgh Book Festival. And, but if not, I will be there in, <laughs> in virtual spirit. So, so now we come to the most important question, James. Uh, the uh, highlight of any novel dialogue interview. And that is, what is your favourite treat when you're writing? So what do you eat or play or do when you need that just little bit of extra inspiration? Um, yeah, I, 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 do, I used to just eat biscuits all the time. I would just like, you know, devoured packets of biscuits, but that's not a very good idea anymore. So what I, what I usually do is I, I actually like to go out and, and get some exercise. So I, I go off for a run. Um, I... Um, uh, I find that's actually a really good way of of, um, of just a relaxing, just getting away from the desk, straightening my back, and all of that sort of thing. But but also, um, I, I often go out thinking, oh, I'll go for a run, and um, and when I, and that that will help me to sort out what's going on in my head. And of course, that's not what happens when you go out for a run. In fact, what happens with me, at least, is I empty my head. Um, and and I just uh, get sort of the the, the 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 vibes and the pleasure of just of just the physical exercise and also being able to run through what is I have to say a very beautiful landscape around about here. So it's it's you you kind of have feeding your sense your your, your sensations in all kind uh, in all kinds of ways your senses in all kinds of ways. But that actually is the best thing that I can do when I you know when I need to get away from the desk and, and so on. And then bizarrely and weirdly, very often I come back and I do find that actually the, the, the thing, the problems, the issues I've been wrestling with in my head have in some senses sometimes moved on and I can actually work my way through them. Yeah. 
I hope you haven't seen any standing stones or fallen down a waterfall and met the devil. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> no, yeah, but I, the, the, the standing stone that I, that I run by, which that I mentioned at the start of this, uh, I, I absolutely can't go by it without touching it. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of big superstitious thing there. Right? You know, um, I, I, have to, I have to touch that stone. Um, and, um, and the day that I forget and go past it, something terrible will happen. <laughs> I have to ask what your biscuits of choice were, though, since I'm always on the lookout for a new for a new cookie. Uh, I, you know what? I, I don't do it anymore because it, because it would be you know like I would open the pack of biscuits and then I'd eat the whole lot. Oh, um, okay. So it's a long time now since I did that. Um, but uh, I, no, I, I I I couldn't actually give you a I couldn't give you a, a biscuit you, of choice to go to anymore. I, I can't even give in to the mental temptation. I get that. All right. I will step in to recommend Scotland's finest biscuit, the Tunnock's caramel wafer. Oh, now you now you see now you've started something. Actually, yeah. the the biscuit I really did used to like was the one called the Abernethy biscuit. Do you remember? If you come across yeah. these, yeah, they're quite plain, but they are delicious. They've got something. I don't know what they. Now you've started. I'm going to have to go and find something. Oh man! All right. Well, this will definitely put a link to in our wafer. I really want that. What is it? Tunnock's caramel wafer. Tunnock's is the maker. Caramel wafer. I'm so getting one. Cookies in America. Biscuits to us. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I mean, so as we approach the end of another novel dialogue, um, besides thanking the two of you, uh, we would also like to thank the Society for Novel Studies, which also means thanking you, Penny, for its sponsorship of the podcast and uh, acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and from Duke University. Uh, Nye Kim is Novel Dialogue's production intern and designer. Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. And I should say that other recent and upcoming dialogues include Bruce Robbins speaking with Orhan Pamuk, Kelly Rich with Teju Cole, Elizabeth McMahon with Helen Garner, uh, author of a, a lovely, I shouldn't say a lovely novel about addiction, but I will, a lovely novel about addiction, <laughs> Monkey Grip. Um, so James, thank you so much. This has been fantastic and, you know, much Not appreciated. A real, a real pleasure to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. And thank you, Penny, for the, uh, I'm sorry, I hope I didn't go too much off, off piste, but uh, we covered a lot of ground. We but, did. Thank you, James, for making things. Great. And so from all of us here at the Butcher's Convention, uh, thank you for listening, and we hope to talk to you again soon. <laughs>